I think Paul's dressed nicely too, but nobody says anything about me. You know, nobody has even noticed that I went to Rich's barber and got my hair colored to be like his. Nobody's even noticed that. Actually, I know Rich for uh, quite a few years, and I've uh, thanked God for him. And uh, I think I can count myself a friend of Renaissance. I'm always able to say good things about Renaissance. You're not perfect, I know that. But one of the things I really appreciate is that you, you push back the boundaries a bit. And, and sometimes, I don't know, sometimes maybe it doesn't work, but you find ways to push back the boundaries so that you can reach people where they are with the good news and the love of Jesus Christ. So I, I'm, a, I'm a Renaissance fan. You won't see me very often, but we do get here once in a while, usually on Saturday night if I'm, if I'm preaching on Sunday someplace. But uh, I thank you for having me today, for Michael and the others who invited for me to come last night and this morning. I want to talk to you about stepping up. And I want to talk about stepping up because I think it's an incredibly important issue and because it was a core value in my dad's life. And the reason why it was a core, I know it was a core value in his life is not because he told me anything about it or preached messages to me, but just because I saw it in his life. He was always stepping up to one thing or another. Didn't neglect us in the process. But boy, if there was a problem in Washingtonville, New York, where we lived, he was going to go and do what he could to make it better. If there was a problem in the real estate business community where we worked, then, then he was going to address that. If it was on the school issues, he was, going to, he was going to step up. And it's kind of interesting, as I prepared the message, I realized that there's a common characteristic in all of my heroes, everybody I look at and say, boy, I want to be like her, or I want to be like him, and it is that they, they step up. It's probably the reason why Teddy Roosevelt's words rang in my heart and my life so much and call me and challenge me to this day. Listen to what he said. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how strong the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there's no effort without error or shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Doesn't that grab hold of your heart and say, boy, I need to step up? And that's what I want to talk to you about today, stepping up. I wonder if it's not a disappearing quality within the American culture. I can't say much for people in other countries, but within the American culture, maybe, maybe the church culture, I'm not sure. I, I've spent some time with a, a demographic, a cultural group for the last three years in a church where I was the interim pastor until they got a long-term pastor. And, and it seems to me, and I, I'm not going to mention the group because I don't want to, I don't want to categorize a group, but but it seems to me, at least in the generation I was dealing with, people weren't stepping up. Now, sometimes the women were, but the men weren't. And, and I didn't have men that I could go to and say, hey, would you take this and get it done? They just weren't willing to do that. They just didn't do that. In fact, one of the times I remember was a, um, a couple of young guys, probably 25 professional men, uh, well-trained, doing a good job in their business world and in their life in general, married men, and uh, they came to me and they said, you know, the ministry we've been a part of is going to close down. I said, why? They said, we don't have any leaders left. I said, really? 
Now, the ministry was to a particular immigrant community from their home area, their home country, and so it had been extremely successful, and the church was populated with a lot of people that came through that ministry, and so it was a valuable ministry, and one that I hated to see them close down, even though I was just there temporarily. I said, why? They said, we don't have leaders. I said, well, you lead them. They said, we can't. I said, really, why not? They said, because in our culture, <laughs> those are the key words, in our culture, you don't lead unless you're invited by the older generation to lead. I said, well, you better change that. I'm the older generation. I'm saying, come on, step up, step up. But it's not just a cultural group that's the problem. It's lots of us. And uh, I think it's in part because we're so busy. I, I think it's in part because some of us have stepped up so many times and we're exhausted, we're, we're tired out, we don't have much energy left, and we don't have much vision, and we're not willing to take that risk of going out and stepping up. But I also think, and maybe you find yourself in this category, some of us are just lazy. Some of us are just self-centered. We want to take care of our own thing that really feels good, but stepping up doesn't feel good, and it might disturb my move my cheese and disturb the things that are important to me. So I'm just not going to do it. And so we make this barrier between us and the challenges that are calling out to us, whether they're in the family or in the school or they're in our workplace, wherever they are in our church, and, and we refuse to step up. And our stepping up is limited to things like uh, reality TV and video games. And you know as well as I do that that's not what we're looking for. We've got to have something different than that, men and women stepping up and doing what God calls them to be. Step up to lead. Step up to give sacrificially. Step up to uh, uh, help the teen ministry. Step up to form that business with that partner. Uh, step up to be the husband that God has called me to be. Step up the, to be the dad that God has called me to be. You know, producing children is fun, but that doesn't make me a dad. That's not always fun. Yeah. Same with moms. Step up to be the mom that God has called us to be. Step up like David stepped up with Goliath. That's why I want to go look at him, because I find so much in him that's, that's uh, calling out to my life. It's an amazing story, and it's in 1 Samuel 17. It's too long to read, but let me give you a kind of a rundown in case you're not familiar with it. It's a picture of God working through a, a young shepherd boy who should not have any chance to win the battle that he's fighting against Goliath. But you know the end of the story, so we won't get there yet. What you, what you also know, perhaps, is that the army of the Philistines were on one hillside and the army of the Israelites were on the other hillside. And obviously, between the two, there was a valley. And the challenge would be to goad your enemy to come down into the valley so that they'd have to climb up the hill to fight against you. And you know there's no chance of winning when that happens, or very little. So what they did was they selected a warrior, in this case from the Philistines. His name was Goliath, very large man, who would call out to the Israelite army and say, send somebody over and, and let that one man step into the, into the arena and he and I will fight it out. And whoever wins, his people win. And we vanquish the other side. They come home with us as slaves and we make use of them in any way we want to. Uh, it was called single combat and it was a very typical way to do things so that armies weren't totally annihilated in the process of battles in ancient times. And so he calls out to them. He says, Come and fight. Nobody wants to go, obviously. It's suicide. <laughs> no doubt about it. So nobody's volunteering. They're all quaking in their boots. And so nobody says yes until, until we get this young kid, David, 
David sent by his father to bring coffee and donuts to his, his brothers, his older brothers, who are supposed to be the warriors ready to fight anybody who comes along. And David comes along. Nobody wants to fight, but David hears the challenge. And David says, I'm going to fight against him. And, and David is insulted that Goliath would speak against his God the way he's speaking. And so he goes to the king, and King Saul says, okay, you go and fight him. And you and I, it's such a common story. We know who won, don't we? Who won between David and Goliath? Yeah, of course, David won. We all know that. David says, though, it was God who won. Listen to this from 1 Samuel chapter 17. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. So is it David's God who saved the day? Yes. Is it David who saved the day? Yes, because he stepped up to the calling of God in his life. I want to go into the story behind the story with David and see if we can't see some things that apply to us as God calls us to step up as husbands, as parents, as workers, as leaders, as ministry uh, involvement, you, you name it, you can apply it to your own life. But, but it's about the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. And most of you don't know who Paul Harvey is, so I won't ask you if you heard of that before, but he used to do his newscast with, this is the rest of the story. Well, what's the rest of the story about David? What's going on behind the scenes where David is concerned? I am indebted to uh, Malcolm Gladwell for his book, David and Goliath. You've heard something about that. I know Rich has used that in a message earlier. You may know that only the first chapter deals with David and Goliath, and then the rest of the book goes on to talk about misfits and people who shouldn't win and how they win and how it's so common for people who are small in one way or another, but they win, contrary to what we typically think. Well, I'm drawing on Gladwell in great part for this, though others have said the same thing. What Gladwell sees and what David may have seen likewise is that Goliath has weaknesses, Weaknesses that we may not see at first when we read the biblical text. But one of the things we think he had was health issues. Is a health issues? Yeah. Health issues like a tumor on the pituitary gland. You say, oh, come on, you're reaching when you say that. No, not really. We think this is good science. How do we know that? Well, one of the characteristics of someone with a tumor on the pituitary gland is that they're very large. This man was 10 feet tall just a little bit under, according to the scripture's testimony. He was a mammoth man. He was extremely large, and that's typical of this condition. The Bible says that he was wearing a bronze helmet and a full body armor. By, by the way, the only place it wasn't covered was right here. You think David knew that too? Yeah, he did know that, yeah. The rest of his body was covered with armor. He was protected, but the armor weighed 125 pounds. So get an idea about this man. He has a mountain of a man. He's carrying a javelin, a spear, and a sword. He is like getting under the boards with LeBron if you go against Goliath. Nobody does that. Nobody who has their head together and they're thinking this guy is mammoth. The second thing we think we know about Goliath in this episode, and I'll show you why we think this is true, is he needs glasses. And he couldn't find an optician to give him the glasses on the day that he went to battle with, 
with David, could he? But he needed glasses. How do we know that? Well, we know that's a common characteristic of people with a tumor on the pituitary gland, so that's a part of it. But we think that he was probably short-sighted, had double vision, and problems with balance. Why do we say that? Now, listen. The attendant precedes him. Why does he have an attendant? He doesn't need an attendant. He usually carries a warrior like him, would carry his shield on this arm, and then he'd use his other arm to fight, or if he's the other handed, he'd go like this. They didn't have an attendant carry their, 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 their shield in front of them, but he probably needed the help. If he had problems with balance and carrying too many things, he has the same problem that most people with that condition have. Second thing we see in the text is that he says David is carrying sticks, plural. Why sticks? David uses a sling, doesn't he? He might have been carrying a walking stick, perhaps. But ah, when Goliath says you're carrying sticks, it points to double vision, doesn't it? Another common characteristic of the pituitary gland issue that we talk about. And beyond that, beyond all that, when, when it comes to the battle, Goliath is a number of times saying, come here, come closer. Why does he want him to come closer? Because well, he can't see him well. So he's got to get him closer or else he can't do battle with him. The farther away David stays from Goliath, the less chance Goliath has of getting his sword into him or his hands around him and wring his neck. Health issues. The second problem he has, and I think David had to see this surely, is overconfidence. And you know what overconfidence does when you're going into battle. It's not your, not your uh, friend. You want to be confident, but overconfidence is, by definition, too much confidence. Well, he had too much confidence. He is brash. He insults the God of Israel, the armies of Israel. He can't imagine losing, especially when he sees David. Hear his voice when he says he looked David over and saw that he was only a, a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He despised him because he's so small. This is an insult. You can't even send a warrior to me. What do you think of me? Not much, apparently, when he sees David. So David knows something about Goliath, and we know it now as we reflect back with a little bit of medical knowledge and information that he has weaknesses. But David knows something else. David knows that he, David, has strengths. And the strengths are what give him the confidence he goes into the battle with Goliath. Let me tell you what they are. Number one, he is trusting God. He has what Brennan Manning, my favorite author, says is, is ruthless trust. Ruthless trust. That's what David has. And that ruthless trust gives him two things. Number one, it gives him the power to win. Because he's going out there in the name of God. And, and God's people are at stake, and God's army is at stake, and surely if I go at God's calling, then God is going to take care of me. Here's what David says. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Pharisee. Saul, uh, Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. He's telling the king, I can go out there because God is with me. He'll take care of me. Power to win. He also has the power to lose. Oh, you say, wait a minute. Power to win, power to lose? Yeah. Power to lose. He had what Jesus would put into words a century later. Here it is. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What do you do with somebody like that? You know, God's going with me. He's going to give me the victory. But if he doesn't, that's okay too. Because I've got this exchanged life with the living God. 
Let me give you a definition, my definition of ruthless trust. I don't know if Manning would say this or not. But in my mind, ruthless trust says, I have my plans, I have prepared, I have prayed, I am confident in the way this battle will turn out. But if God has other plans, I will trust in him. See? What do you do with a guy like that who's coming against you? Pretty tough, pretty scary. If you know that that's what his resolution is, if that's, you, if that's where he's coming from, people like that will lay aside everything they have for the calling of God in the midst of their life. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor from Germany uh, in the 30s, taught in the universities there, discipled men, uh, led churches there, comes to a point in the 30s where he knows that the Nazis, whom he has been opposing, are going to come after him. And so uh, he decides, I'm going to leave town. And so he goes to London first. And then after he ministers in London, he is invited to come to New York City and to live in New York City and to serve here. And it's while he's in New York City that he goes to a, a, a black Baptist church in Harlem. And he, his heart is quickened in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ as it had never been before. And, and during the time he's there, he's, he's watching from a distance what's going on in Germany. But he's safe and sound here, and he can take care of his, his, his own personal needs here, and he can contribute to the kingdom of God here. But he decides he's going back. So he goes back, and he goes back to build up the church, and he goes back to disciple leaders, and he goes back to oppose the thugs who have taken over his country. You say, that's crazy. No, no, that's ruthless trust. And he dies just before the Allied troops come through. That's ruthless trust. That's saying, hey, I can walk with God and I can go wherever he tells me to go. And if it means I, I live, then that's fine. If it means I die, then okay. Like the Apostle Paul put it, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. David's ultimate trust is in the living God, the one whose hand is locked with his hand. But don't stop there. He is also ready for battle. David knows what he's doing. It doesn't look like it to us when we see him, small David against big Goliath, sling against the sword and the javelin and the spear. But he knows. This is not his first time out. In fact, David speaks up. He talks to Saul and he says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. He knows what he's doing. He's done this before, not with Goliath, but with foes that are strong that could overwhelm him. He's done this before. Is he still trusting God? Yes, he's still trusting God. Is he trusting God and being prepared? Yes, he's still trusting God and being prepared with what God has given him that he might do the job that God has called him to be. One last thing I see in David here. He's using his head. This is not fly-by-night kind of decisions. This was a considered option on his part, both he at the call of God and the weapon that he brought. Gladwell tells a lot about uh, the different kinds of warriors that were found in the, in the ancient times. Uh, some of those warriors rode horseback. They were the cavalry. We know about them. Some of those warriors were the ground troops. That was the infantry. We know about them. 
but some of them were projectile warriors. We would call them artillery or mortar or things like that today, or even bombs from a, from a plane, such as we're dropping in the northern part of Iraq even now. They were projectile warriors, but in that day, it was bow and arrow and sling, projectile warriors. Now, you can imagine that Goliath was infantry, and you can see that David was yeah, projectile. He had a sling. What was Goliath expecting? Well, any man worth his salt would come with his armor on and fight him as an infantryman, wouldn't he? And anything less than that is an insult and unfair to Goliath. <laughs> Not even thinking about the size of Goliath and how unfair that is. David came with a sling. Why was that the right weapon? Well, that was the genius weapon because David didn't have to get close to Goliath. Goliath repeatedly said, come here, come here, come here. When David didn't come here, Goliath moved towards him. Why? Eyesight, sling, I don't have to go near him. I can shoot from far off. I can do the job without going close to him. Most of us, myself included, thought David was the second best choice. And we thought that his weapon was the second best choice. Ah, think about it again and realize that David was quick and, and could move fast and he was small and quick and, 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 and Goliath couldn't see him well because he had the eyesight problem. And, and then think about his sling and realize that that was the choice, that was the best choice to fight against Goliath. He wasn't second best, he was God's choice and he was armed as God needed him to be armed. Eton Hirsch says, David could have slung and hit Goliath in little more than one second. A stone hurled by an expert slinger at a distance of 35 meters would have hit Goliath's head with a velocity of 34 meters per second with a stopping power equivalent to a fair-sized modern handgun. And Hirsch should know because he's a ballistics expert with the Israeli Defense Forces. So there you have David. That's the rest of the story. He's trusting God. David is ready for battle, and David is using his head. What's that mean for us? That, that's the rest of the story for David, but what's the rest of the story for Peter? Or what's the rest of the story for Jim? Or what's the rest of the story for Margaret? Or what's the story for you with the calling of God in your life? What, whatever that is, and you can apply this widely because when God calls us, that's what we need to respond to wherever that happens to be. So what is the rest of the story for us? Can we draw some parallels between David and me or you? I think we can. Now, realize that as I, as I talk about this, I'm talking about an assumption here. And the assumption is that when God calls us to do something, he calls us to something that we can't do in our own strength and power. Okay? It's something that's beyond us. It's, it's above us. And if we go into it, we're, we're already under the water because the challenge is so large for what God has in mind for us to do. So when you think about that, realize that what we have to have is a firm place to stand. Surely a firm place to stand. We were in Ocean City a couple weeks ago and <laughs> we went to the crab shack outside of Ocean City on the mainland there. And, and after dinner, we went down to the to the back of it, you know, to get our car. But we went out back for a ways and, and down on the water there, there's a, a, a dock and the dock goes out quite a bit and the boats come in and the people get off their boat and they come inside and have food at the crab shack. But we walked out on the boat, and, or on the dock and the dock was like this. And you know, I'm, I'm old and I don't do those things well anymore, that balance thing. <laughs> and I thought, oh, 
my, I thought about it with this message and I said, I've got to get on some solid ground if I'm going to fight the battle. And the solid ground that David is on is the trust in the living God is going to go with him. That's, that's how it works. Your training, your abilities, your, your strength alone, not enough if it's the high calling of God. Your, your ways, your, your strategy, your ideas, not alone, not enough. Your energy, your pace, your youthfulness alone, not enough. What you've got to have is this thing called ruthless trust. And ruthless trust is not something you go after going to one church service or reading the Bible three times a week. It is, a, it is a, an application of the kinds of things that you'll find in a church service, perhaps, and what you'll read in the Bible. But it is an active practice of getting your hand in his hand and walking with him throughout the day so that as you go along, you'll know, oh yeah, he, he delivered me over there. He delivered me over there. He's going to take care of me here, and I can step up to this challenge because it's an ongoing practice of trusting the living God so that when the next challenge comes, you're ready. You're ready for it. What else? We need the weapons that God has provided. When Saul heard David's idea, Saul said, oh good, this is great. You wear my armor. David puts his armor on. <laughs> he finds out, I'm tripping over this stuff. It's too heavy for me. I can't be quick with this. I can't work the sling with this. I got to carry the sword. He said, I'm not doing that. That wasn't his weapon. You and I have been given weapons. Let me use the term if I can. And, and sometimes we call those weapons spiritual gifts. And sometimes we call them talents and, and sometimes abilities and sometimes experiences and sometimes training and sometimes personality. It's all those things mixed together that make me who I am. You don't have to be somebody else in order to do what God calls you to step up to. I tried. I know from, from experience about that. It was probably 20 years into my time at Millington. It was around the year 2000, and uh, we had grown rapidly, and I just didn't know what to do with it. I'm a pastor. I'm not, a, I'm not an administrator. I'm not a, a CEO, but I thought, well, I either have to leave or I have to become a CEO. So I got a guy in the church who had retired at 50. He was a CEO in his past, and so I said, would you come alongside me and help me, help me to figure this stuff out so I know how to lead a church like this, or else I've got to leave. I was afraid to leave, I guess, so he came along and he helped me, and he sent me to seminars, and he gave me training, he met with me once a week to think about things. He drove me crazy, and I drove him crazy. I, I was never meant to be a CEO. I was trying to be somebody I wasn't. I, I remember one of the times my secretary came by my office, and she knew the struggle I was going through, I think, because she knew, I guess I told her some things, and this guy met with me, and she knew that, and I was going away to seminars, and she stopped and she pushed open the door and she says, you know, you don't need to be anybody else. Just be Peter Pendel, would you please? And I thought, yeah. And I fired the volunteer and said, I can't do this anymore. And I couldn't. I wasn't made to be that. I just needed to be the guy I could be, either at Millington or leave and go someplace else. And if I had my hand in the king's hand, then he would have gone with me and it wouldn't have been a problem. I needed to be me. You need to be you, stop waiting for something else to come along before you step up and take the, take the tools that God has given to you, the way he's prepared you, the way he's made you, and step up. And then finally, we need clear thinking. We really do. We need to be sharp. We need to plan. We need to pray. We need to strategize. Then we need to pray. Then we need to consult. And then we, we need to pray. And 
One of the reasons why I love Renaissance is because it seems like, at least looking at it from the outside, this is one of the strengths of Renaissance. You are purposeful. You are intentional. You don't waste a lot of time with things that used to work. You do what works now. You find out what your, 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 your people are like, what the people in the area are like, and you say, how can we reach these people? And you don't worry about all the other things that, that could be done because you're focused. We need clear thinking. We all need that. The pastor can't build a church and say, oh, they'll come if I build the church. Foolish. A CEO has to have market research. A small group leader needs continuing training. Uh, uh, an evangelist needs to know the culture, and then she needs to know it better and better and better and better. A mom needs to learn from other moms. We need clear thinking if we're going to go into battle, if we're stepping up for what God wants us to do. And listen, God is calling us to step up. He really is. He's calling us to step up in leadership. He's calling us to step up in sacrificial giving or just tithing. He's calling us to step up to support the things that he wants us to support. I, I tell you, if you step up, you're going to have to have the firm place to stand. You're going to have to have the weapons that God has likely already provided and placed in your hand. And you're going to have to be thinking clearly about the battle. And I promise you, if you'll do that, you'll find adventure. You'll find failures. You'll find accomplishment. You'll find lessons. You'll find all kinds of things as you practice stepping I look back over 39 years of ministry in the local churches, one in New York State for six years and then Millington for 30 years, now as an interim pastor going to other churches. And one of my, one of my favorite things to do is to, to look back at people who stepped up in the midst of ministry. Not because I was so smart, but because they heard God's call and they said, yeah, I'm going to do this. One of those is a young man, had a young family, and I, I just felt like he should be given some leadership in the missions team. And so I went to him and I said, Boy, I just think you're the leader for the coming days in this missions team. Would you consider uh, doing that? And his answer to me was what you might answer, and I might too. I'm too busy. I, I work in the city. I can't. I, I got a young family. I don't have the gifts for that kind of thing. I have the passion, but I, I don't have the gifts. And then and I said to him, as we typically do, not expecting it to happen, well, would you pray about it? He said, yeah, I'll pray about it. I didn't expect him to come back to me. A couple weeks later, he comes back to me and says, you know, I think God wants me to do this. And he did it with great effectiveness. Now, he's stepping up to become an elder in his church. Would he do that now if he hadn't done that before? I don't know. <laughs> Got me. But I know that he said yes when he was called to step up. Let me tell you about a couple that I was thinking about this morning. Mike and Julie, I'll call them. And they no longer live in the area, and no one here would know who they are. Mike was not a believer, Julie was. She came from a strong Christian family background. And Mike came to me one day and uh, sobbing, sat down in my office and said, I've discovered that Julie's been having an affair with a man in our small town. And you know what that means. The word passes to other people. I just think my marriage is gone. I, I can't do anything about this. I can't deal with my own anger over it. Uh, so I just want you to know. I said, it doesn't have to be that way, Mike. I said, what do you mean? I said, you can step up. You can step up, first of all, by dealing with the anger and the lack of forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, where you receive God's forgiveness and therefore you're able to give away God's forgiveness to other people, including Julie. And then secondly, you can step up, go back home, be the man that she needs, and step up and win her heart once again. And he did. 
I mean, he did. They had children after that. They now live in another state. I don't see them very often, but they will always be a treasure in my life because he stepped up. What's God want you to step up to? I'll bet he's got something. It might be at home. It might be with your kids. It might be with your husband, your, your wife. It might be at work. I, I, I don't know where it is. What's he want you to step up to? And, and will you learn from David and practice the pattern that, that David practiced for the glory of Jesus the Christ? Let's pray together, please. Father God, I don't know people here, except for a few here and there. But I don't need to know people here. I know that you're calling people to step up, Lord. And I'll likely never hear the story of how you, how you prompt them and move them and they step up and, and life changes for them and for other people because they've, they've responded to you today, Lord. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring home this idea of stepping up to a place where it can't be discarded, to a point of tension in the heart where it can't be easily pushed aside until men and women step up, become what you want them to be in those specific areas of life. Do that for their good and the good of other people, but ultimately for the glory of Jesus, for we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for being here. Love seeing you. God bless you.